0: Pints with Jack, Season 3, Episode 20.
1: Till We Have Faces, Part 2, Chapter 1 Redival in Bardia Unveiled.
0: Good morning. Welcome to Pints with Jack, a podcast where two enthusiastic C.S. Lewis amateurs get together, share a beverage, and discuss a work of C.S. Lewis. This season, we're reading Till We Have Faces. My name is David, and I'm joined by Matt Sleepy Time Bush.
1: Sleepy Time, well done. I'm not drinking any sleepy time <laughs> this time because whenever we record these in the evenings and I drink sleepy time, that's just not a good thing to do when you have to be energized on a podcast and it's 8 nine o'clock at night, and you've got whatever they put herbs in there fighting against your energy levels.
0: Well, I came up with this because we're recording this on a Tuesday, and the episode that released today. Uh, you are drinking sleepy time tea. And also we we have this mad dash when we record on a weekday in the evenings to finish recording before Matt's bedtime.
1: And this one's even bigger because I actually have another call at in 45 minutes. So we are going to see how quick we are going through this.
0: Okay. Well, in that case, tell us what kind of drink you're having today.
1: I just have LaCroix. I'm sorry for listeners, because I'm going back through early episodes right now of Mere Christianity, and it was nice what we used to do with the beers and stuff. So this Exodus 90 is really killing the, the funness of the drinks that we used to do.
0: Well, because I'm Byzantine, we've actually already started Lent. We're doing this on Shrove Tuesday, or Pancake Day, or whatever other day you want to call it, Mardi Gras. And for Byzantines, our Lent begins on Clean Monday, which was yesterday. So... Yeah. So I am drinking Yogi green tea, super antioxidant.
1: So this was a long way of each of us saying we apologize to any listener who used to enjoy our drink stuff. (laughs) So, quote of the week. This is, I was torn between a few different quotes because some I think summarize some big picture themes and some are just technical. But I'm going to choose this technical one because I think it really summarizes the book and how we have to approach the book and the lens that we need to view the book through. So in the very beginning of this chapter, she says, by she, I mean Orwell, since I cannot mend the book, I must add to it to leave it as it was would be to die perjured. I know so much more than I did about the woman who wrote it. So for anyone listening, like that's the lens we now have to realize that everything we just read, she goes so far and says, I will die perjured. So we're probably going to unpack that later in this episode. So just, just think about that a little bit. But with that said, David, cheers. Cheers.
0: So before we get started, I wanted to congratulate Crystal Hurd. Uh, I saw on Facebook the other day that she has got a new car. It's a 2020 Toyota Supra. And I don't know anything about cars, but I'm going to assume that's good. <laughs> and she posted this on Facebook. She said, Everybody meet Albert. 10 points to Gryffindor for the first person who knows the meaning behind the name. Matt, do you know the meaning behind the name?
1: She's a big Lewis fan. Was this a name of, it's not his brother's name. Could have been a name of a family member. Like it's, Oh, you, you're getting warm. Um, obviously it's not, could it, could it be his father? Ding, 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 ding. No.
0: Well done. <laughs> yeah, Albert Lewis was Jack's dad.
1: Well, once you told me, I wouldn't have been able to guess it out of the blue, but once you confirmed it was a family member, I'm like, well, I don't, have never heard of any of his cousins.
0: One more thing that I wanted to say before we got going, uh, we're going to have Andrew Lazo back on the show uh, once we've finished till we have faces. So if you
1: have more questions, uh, please post them on the Slack channel. And was his interview not incredible? That last one, because that would have been released right before this, correct? Yes. Oh, he is I mean, he unlocks some great stuff. So for people who are listening to this, take advantage of his wisdom. I, I, what I love that he did is he put it into the bigger context of Lewis's, what would you say, corpus? Is that the right word? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and how yeah. it fits in his life and his journey and his, pretty much let's call it Lewis's systematic theology, if I can use that term with quotes, air quotes. It's It was amazing. So definitely, definitely ask these questions and just a shameless plug David said the Slack channel it's going fantastic if you guys want to be part of that we started our Patreon go check that out it's just patreon slash or dot com slash pints with Jack if you support us at tier two or above you can join that community who by the way or not who but Andrew Lazo is a part of that community so it's a great one
0: Mm -hmm. now Matt and I were originally going to continue doing two chapters per episode but We discussed it and we decided that we're going to slow down a little bit for part two of this book. Everything's changing, so we we, we need to take it in. We're going to be devoting a whole episode to each of these final four chapters.
1: And when David asked that reason, I was like, I think that's a great idea because there's even, even Andrew says, it's like you just know something went over your head when you read this book. Well, a lot of that, what just went over your head, gets somewhat answered in the second part. So if we don't do the justice on these chapters, it's almost like wasting the first 22 chapters or 21. So this is why we got to do this. Exactly.
0: So here is my 150-word summary of this episode's chapter, chapter one. Soon after finishing her book, Orwell tells us that something happened which caused her to reassess everything she has written thus far— while she would like to rewrite it, she doesn't have long left to live, so she's appending to her book in the hope of setting the record straight. An ambassador from a great kingdom comes to the palace, and it turns out to be Taran, the boy who was caught with Redival and subsequently castrated. During their conversation, he reveals that Redival was a lonely girl and jealous of Orwell's love for Psyche. Psyche then has a tortured dream where she is trying to sort out different kinds of seeds. Back in the real world, Bardia becomes ill and dies. Orwell visits his widow, who reveals that
1: Orwell had worked him to death. Well done, David. This is this is going to be a good chapter. When I
0: first read this chapter, I was blown away. I It really made me realize that my suspicion that this second part was going to completely recolor the first part, it was confirmed.
1: I had already read it, and I don't think I noticed that Uh, how drastic it, I like how you did completely recover. I don't even think I recognized that when I read it quickly the first time.
0: Well, it kicks off by, we we find out that Orwell is dying. She'll soon be dead. She tells us that she knows her advisors have secretly sent a message to her nephew, Duran, letting him know of his aunt's impending passing. Orwell tells us that although it's only a few days since she completed her book, she now has to append it. And as I said in the summary, she would like to rewrite it, but she knows that death is not far away, so she's simply going to add to it. And this is the quote of the week. To leave it as it was would be to die perjured. She's realized that she's written stuff that isn't true. And she says, I know so much more than I did about the woman who wrote it. Which I think is a very telling, very, very telling assessment. In many ways, her eyes have been opened.
1: And we're going to actually see some of how they were opened in this chapter here.
0: Yeah. And and what what had changed? What was it that happened that made her want to add to this book? And the first thing that she says is that the very act of writing down her story changed her. It reawakened passions and thoughts which had long remained dormant. When we were reading those chapters, she was talking about uh, putting Psyche and everything that happened in a locked room in behind a dam. And in the process of writing it down, it's brought all of those things to life again. And she says that the past that I wrote down was not the past that I thought I had all these years been remembering. And not only that, by having the time to ruminate on what she'd written, it allowed her to see things more clearly.
1: Isn't it interesting how this is something psychologically we know, like when you've built up this false self, these defenses in your life... The act of writing down and going back over your past and remembering then makes you remember more things, and then more things. It's it's. I don't know if Lewis meant that to be intentional here, but that act of remembering is very powerful. I would think so.
0: I mean, he had written his own autobiography, and I know whenever I've had to give my testimony or or tell people about my past, the very act of doing it has brought all of that to the fore, and sometimes it can give me clarity because of the distance be- that there's now passed between the events and
1: the retelling. It can also be very painful, because she, she uses a term here where she calls it, like this writing was preparation for the surgery of the gods. Think about that for a second, that word, Surgery. That was, to me, very telling of to what you said earlier, how drastic this shift was in her mindset and letting go of this preconceived world, this narrative, whatever you want to call it, that she built up was so painful. Yeah.
0: She says, they use my own pen to probe my wound. Oh, so it's kind of like they're prodding up against the wound. <laughs> wow. But there, there will be more revelations before this chapter is over. And the first real revelation came concerning Redival. Orwell says that when she wrote about their early days together, she was flooded with many fond memories of their childhood together. And this kind of surprised her. And her assessment, unfortunately, was how terribly Redival had changed since those days, when she was a nice girl. And then she goes on and says that an embassy arrives from a great king who lives in the southeast. And the chief ambassador was a eunuch. And this is how Orwell describes him. This was one of the fattest men I ever saw. So fat, his eyes could hardly see over his cheeks, all shining and reeking with oil and tricked out with as much dull finery as one of Ungut's girls. So kind of judgy there, Orwell, but OK.
1: Yeah, tell us how you really <laughs> feel. Are we allowed to trust this, by the way?
0: I think this is on straight appearances, so probably, (laughs) probably. Uh, I mean, other people might regard him as jolly, but I don't know. In the dialogue, I found him kind of annoying.
1: Uh, I did too. Yeah,
0: Yeah, he keeps saying tee-hee-hee in the words like, ugh. Particularly when I would have to read that out loud to Marie and I'd have to affect the voice. Ugh. Ugh, I found it annoying.
1: How, how about the part when he says, like, he was with Rediva or whatever it was, whatever he did, kissed her something. I've been with some better women since then, but... Yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so cringeworthy.
0: Yeah, we'll get to that in a moment, because <laughs> what happens is, he, he seems somewhat familiar to Orwell. And she eventually realizes that this is Taryn, the soldier with whom Redival was caught, and he was castrated by her father. And I also thought that Oral's description of her attempts to identify him was significant. She said, I began to think there was a faint likeness in him to someone I had seen long ago. And as we do, I chased it and gave up and chased it and gave up again till suddenly when I least thought of it, the truth started into my mind. Now I might be reading too much into this, but this describes our our human attempts to obtain something. And it's only when we stop chasing it that it actually comes to us. And since this is a book all about possessive love and grace, that's what that section reminded me of. When we try and do things in our own strength, we typically fail. Uh, But it's only when we let go and throw in the towel, so to speak, that we begin to see clearly.
1: It's awesome. Just a great... Psychological principle there. They've done studies where they say you've got fifteen minutes to solve this math problem. And then the the probability of people solving it's actually quite low because they have this time. And then when they give someone else, like they say walk away for fifteen minutes, then come back and just give it your best shot, the probability way higher and they actually were able to still solve it usually within fifteen minutes. Mm. Not quite as spiritual as your comment.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, now we've identified that this eunuch is Taryn, he comes across as kind of unpleasant and definitely rather silly. But he does give the king the credit for the great man that Taran has now become. He says, That but for your father's temper, I might have gone on carrying a shield in the guard of a little barbarous king whose whole kingdom could be put into one corner of my master's hunting park and never be noticed. And despite these jabs, Orwell continues to remain gracious. And then the subject does turn to Redaval. And Taran describes her as a pretty little girl. But he then tells Arawal, "I've had finer women through my hands since." Oh, which is, ugh. that's wanted a like, punch up. So gross. Yep. So not only is it saying, "Hey, I've had prettier girls than your sister," it's the phrase "through my hands."
1: Mm. Anyway, slimy, yeah. slimy. He pictures like that Java the hut or not Java. Yeah, who's the one that that yep. that? Yeah. All right, good.
0: Java the hut. Very unctuous. And. In response to this, Orwell tells him that she is now Queen of Fars. And Taryn, he's a jerk still. He says, oh, one forgets the names of all these little countries. (laughs) What a douche.
1: Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) David, are we allowed to say that today?
0: I think that's allowed. (laughs) But here's the important part in that interaction. He tells Orwell that he took pity on Redaval because she was lonely. Oh, yes, yes, very lonely. After the other princess, the baby came. So he means psyche. She used to say, First of all, Oral loved me much. Then the fox came, and she showed me little. Then the baby came and she loved me not at all. So she was lonely. I was sorry for her. There's lots of the teehee ing <laughs> And he says, Oh, I was a fine young fellow then. Half the girls in Gloam were in love with me. There. But this is a real revelation if we're assuming that Taryn is telling the truth, Redaval was lonely. She was jealous of the love that Orwell gave to the fox and to Psyche.
1: That was the first time where she's officially, like she's getting her worldview shattered to some degree. Aside
0: from having met a god, but yeah.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> but she's, she's finally, maybe the best way to put this is she's getting the other perspective. Mm. She's been so in curvate in se so turned within herself. She cannot see anything from someone else's perspective. And so Taryn's coming here and saying, Well, what about all of this from Redival's perspective? You guys were friends. You hung out. She has those beautiful descriptions of them like frolicking and going to ponds and stuff. And then all of a sudden, Psyche comes along, and all of a sudden the fox comes along and they become best friends. And she she was just at shock because she goes, Well, That's not how it's supposed to work. I was the pitiable one. And she's thinking to herself, well, psyche, or not psyche, sorry, redival, beautiful hair, golden locks of love. Therefore, why should she be pitied in any way, shape or form? So this was was a powerful moment for her to have this realization that there was an alternative narrative. I'm going to use a kind of technical term there. And her narrative, her worldview, her analytical framework, the way she'd seen things was not necessarily correct.
0: Yeah, she might not have been the victim. Yes.
1: And I also can't help but
0: wonder what she would have said to Redival had she heard that from her. I wonder if she would have said something like, the fox, don't think that just simply because I love the fox, I don't simply think because I love Psyche that I love you less. Because this is, this is a fundamental lesson that Orwell hasn't really learned yet. And I wonder if somebody told her, I felt jealous. I felt like, because you were loving these other people, you had no love left for me.
1: I would imagine she would respond in some way of... quite negative. Just like, oh, stop pitting around. You've got everything so so good. You're all beautiful. You've got this good hair. I doubt she would have received it. (laughs) Honestly, I don't picture her receiving that.
0: Yeah, Redival must have had very pretty hair. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, while she's trying to sort through the implications of Trunia's testimony trying to discern fact from fiction, because she doesn't initially trust his assessment of things. Her sleep is affected, and she has very strange dreams. And particularly if people have listened to last week's episode, where I read out the original Cupid and Psyche myth, this should seem familiar. Orowall writes, "'I thought I had before me a huge, hopeless pile of seeds, "'and I must sort them out and make separate piles, "'each all of one kind.'" Why I must do it, I do not know. But infinite punishment would fall upon me if I rested a moment from my labor, or if, when all was done, a single seed were in the wrong pile. There was one chance in 10,000 of finishing the labor in time, and one in a 100,000 of making no mistake. It was all but certain I should fail and be punished, but not certain. In some dreams, I became a little ant, and the seas were as big as millstones. And laboring with all my might till my six legs cracked, loads bigger than myself. So in the original myth, this is one of the tasks that's assigned to Psyche after her betrayal
1: of Cupid. I didn't realize that until I read Peter Shackle's book. And we're going to see this, but he, he talked about those four different tasks. And one of them is the seed task or sorting through these seeds. And Psyche had to go through it from a physical perspective Orwell has to go through them all, but not necessarily from a physical perspective. So in this case, it's a a mental sorting. And I'm curious what your thoughts are of why Lewis did that. So this seems to be that this is how you're going to be like psyche, or at least a way that he this was meant. Mm-hmm. What do you think, though, Lewis meant by, like, what's the point of her having to go through this? Is this, like, what was, a, in, the, in the original myth, what was the point of those four things? I guess what I'm trying to ask, and... What what lesson are we supposed to learn? I'm not
0: entirely sure what lesson we were meant to learn. I mean, in most Greek myths, people are set seemingly impossible tasks. Uh, I think perhaps maybe to teach us that we need to use cunning and overcome the tasks somehow. I'm not entirely sure what Lewis is doing at this point. I don't know quite why Orwell is, at least mentally, doing the task of Psyche. Is it a vision? is a division of what Psyche is doing, and Orwell is participating in it in some way, is the new thing that Lewis is adding to this myth, you too shall be Psyche. The idea of Orwell's participation in Psyche's life and maybe transformation into
1: Psyche somehow.
0: Honestly, at this point, I'm really not sure.
1: I guess maybe my best guess of this would be, I don't actually know the original story, but it seems like that was a task before they were able to the, if I'm correct, in the, at least in Psyche's case, she was with the gods and distanced herself, had to go on this journey to get back to the gods. Maybe we look at this as if we're going to undo our false selves, which are necessary for us to be able to enter into communion with God. And of course, his grace is going to help us do that. There's going to be a journey of sifting through in these these different stages to unpacking that. And like this first one is the stage of just self-awareness, honestly. That's what I'm getting from these seeds. And I don't know what the next three are going to be. But this is like a stage of the first layer before you start this unpacking of your false self or undoing is probably the better word you need to f- sort through and just understand. You have to have a self-awareness that, Hey, look this is where it's popping up. This is how it's affecting me. This is how things are different. Then you can start doing additional work and going peeling back layers of the onion. So I'll be curious, I guess, if these next couple chapters, this is a task of that journey, of undoing the veils that prevent us from being able to be in communion with the gods.
0: I think that's probably it. I, I think there's also probably some purgative aspect. Uh, if in the original hmm. in the original myth, it was all about journeying to the gods after Psyche's fall, uh, in this case, it would be Orwell's journey to the gods as well. And the first step of that journey means seeing things clearly. Yes. Whenever I have to speak on the Beatitudes, and you have that opening Beatitude, best of the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, I describe it as declaring spiritual bankruptcy, basically throwing yourself on the mercy of God, and that being the starting point, to know that God is God and you are not. I like that. But hopefully this will become a little clearer as we move through the final few chapters.
1: I expect so. Now,
0: Oral says that she was so distracted by these thoughts and dreams that she thought very little of Bardia. Uh, except when she grumbled at his absence, uh, which his absence meant that she couldn't continue working on her book. She writes this, While the rage of it lasted nothing, seemed to matter a straw except finishing my book. Of Bardia only said, once and again, Does he mean to slug a bed for the rest of his life? Or it's that wife of his. There's Orwell. Starting to worry she was changing. And there is the king. The king used that exact phrase in reference to Orwell when she was sick in bed. Huh. It's the worst part of Orwell.
1: Yes. There it is. I wonder if that's symbolic of this next part. We're about to realize that honestly the worst part of Orwell was directed towards Bardia. Uh, You could probably say psyche actually. Probably psyche. Yeah. Yeah. I take that back. Speculation. But either
0: way, As she's finishing this book and being distracted by these dreams, uh, we're told that she learns from Arnhem that Bardia is sick. And it's quite serious because he apparently has a little strength to fight this sickness. And in that passage, I think, again, Lewis's phrasing is significant because when she's talking about Bardia, she says that she finds this out, uh, his sickness and impending death, while she's writing the last line of her book, they have no answer while well, that was still wet. So I wonder if he's setting up this next section as something of an answer. So if you think about it, several times in the book, she has said things like, but the gods gave no answer. And then immediately following, there is some event that's going to drive the narrative forward. So are these events, are these the answers that she's actually been seeking?
1: I guess we'll find out.
0: Well, after offering recriminations, uh, Oral calls for her horse, But Arnim tells her not to go to Bardia. He says that her presence would make his recovery less likely, basically because he's such a loyal and loving subject. He would immediately try and go back to his job and think through everything that he needs to do and just the stress of this would just kill him. And Oral doesn't like it, but she says that she would be willing to suffer a long time uh, if it meant that she could extend Bardia's life at all. Uh, but then it's, it's actually quite funny in the text, because by the fourth day, Orwell is starting to crack. You know, she says that she would suffer forever in uh, four days, and she'd run out of patience. Uh-huh. And then on the fifth day, Bardia dies. And Orwell comments, what seemed to me worst of all was that Bardia had died without ever hearing what it would have shamed him to hear. So the worst thing about his death was the fact that he didn't get to hear something that would have shamed him. It seemed to me that all would be bearable if, only once, bearable for whom? You've got to ask, bearable for Uh Bardia or for her? It seemed to me that all would be bearable if, once only, I could have gone to him and whispered in his ear, Bardia,
1: I love you. And as we're going to see very shortly here, we're going to question whether that's a true statement. Yes. Or what that means Mm. in her case.
0: She goes on and explains that she has to behave all dignified at the cremation because she was not his wife not a member of his family she couldn't wail or beat her breast really show her her sorrow and her mourning for him
1: interesting remember this whole book started with wailing and beating of the breasts yes
0: the the death of her mother uh
1: uh-huh so there's something there maybe that started it all the death of the mother kicked off this journey of the false self maybe this is bookending it and saying now begins the journey of her recognizing the opposite, going the other way. Well, it's
0: also interesting how she describes that she would have hurt herself if she could. She said if she was allowed to mourn like a wife or a family member, she'd have beaten her breast and done it with steel gloves or hedgehog skins. She wants to hurt herself in expressing her grief.
1: Hmm. Not to make of that. I mean, I'm trying to think, but nothing's coming to my mind.
0: It it just seems very self destructive that she, because she's emotionally hurting, she wants to physically hurt herself. I think there's something of that in death, Mm-hmm. but also there's something in that that seems kind of twisted.
1: Yes, but now the fu- but now the fun part.
0: Yeah, after waiting the customary three days, Arul goes to visit Bardia's widow. She describes it as uh, comforting his widow. That's the phrase. Uh, But I don't know about you, but as I was reading this, I was pretty sure that Orwell was going to offer something other than comfort.
1: I think that was a safe bet.
0: (laughs) She writes, it was not only duty and usage that drove me. Because he had loved her, she was, in a way, surely enough the enemy. Yet who else in the whole world could now talk to me? I was initially encouraged by the first sentence. She recognizes that Bardia loved his wife. And so I thought, oh, okay, so it's going to be because we have this common love That that's going to bind us together, but the latter part seems to again point to use. Who else in the world could talk to me? It's it's taking something that again could have possibly have been good, being two people being drawn together by a common love, but she seems to view it in so much more of a utilitarian way.
1: Be interesting that that statement that wound up coming true. Well, partially,
0: briefly, briefly. Orwell enters Ansett's house, so Ansett is Bardia's wife, and she makes some assessments about Ansett's beauty, which are far too catty that I'm not even going to read them. Uh, but she then speaks to his wife, and she says that she took both of her hands before she had time to take them away. Uh, and I'm just going to say, if you want to hold someone's hand and they try and reach away, don't try. She doesn't want to hold your hands. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then she she offers some sympathies, although... I have to say ones that I personally didn't find particularly encouraging. And Anne said she extricates her hands and she offers some stiff, formal replies. After all, she's talking to the queen. Uh, and Orwell really tries to break through this. She says, Oh dear lady, unqueen me a little. Which is interesting considering Orwell has spent the last few chapters trying to become the Queen and to kill Orwell. But with Ansett, she says, unqueen me a little, I beseech you. Is it as if you and I had never met until yesterday? After yours, never think I compare them. My loss is the greatest.
1: Oh, or while well, someone needs to teach you a lesson in comforting someone mourning.
0: Yeah, I do think she got some advice from the comforters
1: of Job. <laughs> Your loss is great. But mine is right there behind you. Right behind it. <laughs> right behind you. Close seconds.
0: <laughs> the Queen encourages Ansit to sit and resume her spinning. And she sits down beside her. However, it becomes really clear that Ansit isn't going to be driving this conversation. She doesn't really want to talk to the Queen. So the Queen, making conversation, expresses her surprise at Bardi's sudden death and asks if there were any signs leading up to it. And to oral surprise... Ansit says that there were indeed signs. That although it wasn't an especially dangerous sickness that Bardia had, he just didn't have the strength to fight it. And this just makes no sense to Orwell, who knew Bardia to be this strong warrior. And his wife replies that he was like a tree that had been eaten away from within. It looked strong on the outside, but he was hollow. There was, he was rotten. He had the appearance of strength, but he was
1: weak. And, and Orwell did not like that.
0: No. Ansett says, he was tired. He'd worked himself out, or been worked. Ten years ago, he should have given over and lived as old men do. He was not made of iron or brass, but flesh. And as you say, Orwell doesn't like this <laughs> at all. And, and, and she's also just confused by it, because this isn't the Bardia that she's seen. And Ansett said, well, perhaps you never saw him, Queen, at the times when men show their weariness. And she talks about him, early in the morning and late at night. And just saying that he was too good a man. He was too well-mannered. He wouldn't nod and yawn in your house. He did that in, in his own house. And he'd been part of five wars, 31 battles, 19 em- embassies. And he just spent day and night in the pillar room. And she says, the mines are not the only place where a man can be worked
1: to death. And that's that set, Orwell off internally. Well, she's angry.
0: She's horrified. And and she just tells Ansit that this is just your grief speaking. uh, And that if she could bear the strains of this kind of life, so could Bardia. And Ansit replies that, well, anyone who has known men would doubt what you've just said. (laughs) And I think if, if Joy David even wrote another section, it was definitely this part. Men are harder, but women are tougher. Uh, women live longer. Men are brittle, and they don't weather sickness well. And that's definitely true, because any guy that has had man flu, it's way worse than, than, than <laughs> women have a cold. Um, that's, just, that's just science right there. And, and she also points out that Oral is younger. Bardia is an older man. And in response to this, Oral says that her heart shriveled up cold and abject. And she complains that if this was true, then she was deceived. If Bardia had said anything, she would have released him immediately. And I don't really believe her on that one. No. Because remember what happened when she released the fox? She released him, but then immediately pulled him back.
1: hmm And clearly she does not know Bardia very well. Bardia would never step back. He was like the most loyal, faithful servant to Orwell. Yeah.
0: And, and Ansit says that the queen has been very fortunate to have such faithful servants. And Orwell responds, I know I have had loving servants. Really? <laughs> yeah, do you that's, really I thought the same that? thing. Yeah. And this is where she starts to get particularly grumpy. She says, do you grudge me that, the fact that I've had these loving servants? Even now in your grief, will your heart serve you to grudge me that? It's like, <laughs> Orwell, she's just told you that she thinks that you worked her husband to death. Yes. And then Orwell's wounds start being put on full display. She says, do you mock me because that is the only sort of love I have ever had or could have? No husband, no child. And you? You have had all. And then Ansit responds, all you left me, queen.
1: Wow. That's a powerful five words. All you left me. She, Orwell drained Bardia so much that. There was nothing left. I mean, just, just a second to show, to process how much she used Bardia. She actually, from uh, Ansit's perspective, she got everything in reality. She left her a hollowed man when he got home.
0: Which I think might be a little bit of hyperbole because you also do have a contrast between their two relationships. Ansit had Eros with Bardia, she had Storge with her family, mm-hmm. and Orwell didn't. She only had a Ophelia kind of love with Bardia. So hearing her words and seeing her face, Oral realizes that Ansit has been jealous of her. And she jumps up and she pulls aside her veil and says, look, look, you fool. Are you jealous of this? Wow. And Oral then writes, she started back from me gazing so that for a moment, I wondered if my face were a terror to her. But it was not fear that moved her. For the first time, that prim mouth of hers twitched. The tears began to gather in her eyes. Oh, she grasped. Oh, I never knew you also. What? You also loved him. You've suffered. We both. So it seems that while everything Anne said was true, she hadn't realized that Orwell's emotions had also been tied up in this. She thought that Orwell was just purely manipulating Bardia or just being utilitarian. She hadn't realized the love that Orwell had for her husband. And here we go. They
1: embrace.
0: Yeah, they weep together. They fall into one another's arms, but it doesn't last. (laughs) They separate. (laughs) Orwell puts her veil back on, and Ansit puts back on her metaphorical veil. Uh, Orwell comments that her face became hard and cold Orwell, for her part, says that Ansett made these accusations to torture her, but asks her if she really believes them herself. Mm, this is powerful. She responds, believe? I do not believe. I know that your queenship drank up his blood year by year and ate out his life. And Orwell then asks her, well, why didn't you say something? Why don't you say something to save your husband? And, and, and she says, I can't do that. that that's not my place. I wouldn't take that away from my husband. Much like the fox, she's refusing to manipulate the one that she loves.
1: Her line, when she says after this and responds, and yet he would have been yours. Notice right there, the power in that line or the, not the power, but the, I don't even want to use the wisdom, but it's the wisdom of Orwell, which is lack of wisdom. But yeah, of course you're manipulating, but he would have been yours. That possessive, it represents everything she's been doing. Well, at least they're mine though.
0: And Anzit refuses to accept that. She says, he was my husband, not my house dog. Wow.
1: Man, Orwell's getting beat across the head. (laughs) Yeah, she says,
0: he was to live the life he thought best and fittest for a great man, not that which would most pleasure me.
1: Anzit shows us here an example of gracious gift love. She doesn't want to control her husband. She wants to allow him to be who he's meant to be. And she wants to pour into him, give to him so he can become the fullness of himself. Whereas we see in Orwell, an example of a manipulative need love. And you've heard us use these terms before. We wanted to qualify it with manipulative because need love isn't necessarily bad. But when it goes, when it becomes distorted, it can become dangerous. And we see that with Orwell. She would use him for her pleasure and for her own self-gratification or validation. And we see that dichotomy right here, strongly. And
0: that's not the only thing. Ansit then offers another accusation, that the queen has stolen her son in the same way that she stole her husband.
1: If, when it rains, it pours.
0: Yes. She says, you've taken the Erdia now. He will turn his back on his mother's house more and more. He will seek strange lands and be occupied with matters I don't understand and go where I can't follow and be daily less mine, more his own and the world's. Do you think I'd lift up my little finger if lifting it would stop it? She doesn't seem controlling, not in the same way Orwell is. Uh, and while I can understand her angst, I'm not entirely sure Ansit's horror is warranted.
1: When you say horror, what do you mean by horror? The in f- a sense,
0: The fact that her son is being taken away from her.
1: I can see. So you're saying it's not warranted.
0: I think there's a natural grieving that a mother has when her children... Leave her, mm. but I'm not sure how much Orwell is stealing him versus giving him opportunities that are far beyond what he would be able to do otherwise.
1: I see what you mean. That actually is something we've talked about Wild at Heart before, but they talk about that where the mother and when the person grows up, a man, the son grows up, she wants to hold on to him, and there's this transition period where she's got to let him go. And I see what you're saying here. Yeah,
0: I th- I think she's generally good but part of me thinks that there maybe is a little bit more there than perhaps necessary, but I'm not a mother. Maybe I'm totally wrong on this. I'm not sure. (laughs) Uh, When Orwell asks her if she could bear separation from her son, she fires back, you ask that? Oh, Queen Orwell, I begin to think you know nothing of love. How many times have people said that to her over the course of this book? Wow. But she actually takes it back a little bit. She says, oh, no, I'll not say that. Yours is queen's love, not commoner's. Perhaps you, who spring from the gods, love like the gods, like the shadow brute. They say the loving and the devouring are all one, don't they? That has to sting.
1: Have you read the next chapter? Yes. Yes. Okay, Uh, we're not gonna obviously say anything from a listener's perspective, but remember this sentence, you love like the gods devouring everything that Orwell has mentioned about the gods. This is a very interesting sentence once you've read the next chapter.
0: Orwell then switches back to talking about Bardia, saying that she saved his life and Ansit would be a a widow a long time ago if it wasn't for her. Uh, This seems to conflict a little bit with what she said before about her own military deeds, Remember she really downplayed them all. Uh, but oral says that she got a wound saving Bardia which still aches when the weather changes. And she demands to know where Ansit's wounds are. And Ansit fires back Where a woman's are when she has borne eight children. Yes, saved his life. Why? You had use for it. Thrift, Queen Orol, too good a sword to throw away. <sighs> You're full fed, gorged with other men's lives. Women's too. Bardia's, mine, the foxes, your sisters, both your sisters. And Orwell just snaps at this point. She sees Red and she cries out, it's enough. If you had spoken thus to my father, he'd have had your tongue cut out. And Ancet just replies, what, afraid of it? She wants to know, (laughs) is Orwell afraid of her tongue and the truth that it will tell?
1: This again, based on next chapter, is is. Very interesting because the, the connection to the Father. A lot is going to come full circle, which is why we've been doing one chapter at a time here, because we really want to flush this out so that way we don't miss anything since we've had 22 chapters or something like that, building up to this, these next four chapters. Mm-hmm. But oh, remember that one, listeners, for next week.
0: And then there's the journey home, because... Orwell then leaves Ansit's house, grumbling that she'll give Allerdia back and he can live a dull, boring sort of life and his mother will be happy. However, she then admits that she didn't actually do this. She then says, though, that the gods now get to work on her with their divine surgery. She says that her anger only protected her for so long. She says when anger wearies itself out, truth comes
1: in. Mm, I... I don't want to go on a tangent here at all. And we're not going to, but <laughs> think when, when you are, think of this for a second, though. When you are turned within, I have experienced this in my own life. You're feeling hurts, you're feeling wounds, you're feeling shames. You've built your ego up. Someone hits your ego, you get angry. But sometimes when they hit your ego with truth, eventually your anger, your walls, they subside and the truth starts to set in. And I've been on both sides of that. I've been the receiver where I'm frustrated and I don't hear a single bit of what they're saying because the truth is piercing something within me. And I've sometimes been on the other side where I've spoken truth and the person's really hurt by it. And it's hard in those moments to be the speaker of truth as much as it's hard to be the receiver of truth because you feel like you've just hurt someone. There's a lot there.
0: It makes me think of when I'm angry with somebody and I then go work out and I work out at a kickboxing gym. So I'm wailing on bags and... (laughs) when i am absolutely spent i'm still left with what they've said and it's it's at those points that i can then see you know what they're actually
1: right yeah are you punching their truth or are you punching your false self away uh, yeah depends mm. Mm. deep deep
0: and maybe orwell took a took a took a little bit of a workout because she then admits that what Ansett said was true, but not only true, it was truer than she could ever know. She admits that she purposefully kept Bardia late. She says anything to put off the moment when he would go and leave me to my emptiness. And she even says that she actually hated him for leaving and she punished him. She said that she she knew the things that she could say and do that would cause other people to mock him. She says, I hated them for doing it, but I had a bittersweet pleasure at his clouded face. And it's at this point she realises that she both loved and hated Bardia. And this sounds very similar to something that Psyche and the Fox had said. A love like that can grow to be nine-tenths hatred and still call itself love. One thing certain, in my mad midnight fantasies, and sit dead, or better still, proved whore, witch, or traitress. When he was at last to be seeking my love, I always had him begin by imploring my forgiveness. Sometimes he had to work hard to get it. I would bring him within an ace of killing himself first.
1: Wow, that is a completely different picture than we've been given throughout the book. Because it's all been from her perspective. So yes, we've been seeing an overworked person, but this this is another angle. And strangely enough,
0: all this actually ends her craving for Bardiya, Or all, all of this desire that has been going on for years suddenly dries up and withers. She says, perhaps in the soul, as in soil, those growths that show the brightest colours and put forth the most overpowering smell have not always the deepest root. Or perhaps it's age that does it. But most of all, I think it was this. My love for Bardiya, not Bardia himself, had become to me a sickening thing. I'd been dragged up and out onto such heights and precipices of the truth that I had come into an air where it could not live. It stank, a gnawing greed from, a gnawing greed for one to whom I could give nothing, of whom I craved all. Heaven knows how we had tormented him, answered and I, for it needs no Oedipus to guess that many and many a night Her jealousy of me had welcomed him home, late from the palace, to a bitter hearth.
1: What do you think? My love for Bardia, not Bardia himself. The object
0: of her desire wasn't Bardia, but the love that she wanted from him. Mm. It's funny, it makes me think of The Bachelor or The Bachelorette, when the couple is spending all this time talking about their love, and they clearly just don't know each other at all. But but they focus on the love because they like the idea of love. They like the idea of this person that they're going to marry uh, or trying to get to marry them much more than the person before them. Again, it comes to a means to an end.
1: We're recording this and there's a couple episodes left of The Bachelor. Now, when this is released, it'll be done. But David, uh, have you been watching this with Marie?
0: Uh, not this time. I will admit... It's one of my guilty pleasures. But I did see that they're having a senior's version of The Bachelor coming out after this.
1: Oh, no. Old
0: people love. It's going to be amazing.
1: <laughs> that actually could be better in a great way because it's people that are just more mature, I would hope. <laughs>
0: yeah, good luck with that. I
1: would actually watch it. I'm curious. Anyway, let's, uh, let's
0: wrap this up because we've only got a couple of minutes left. Uh, as the desire for Bardia goes away, Oral feels like nearly all of herself goes away as well. She says when the craving went, nearly all that I'd called myself went with it. You see that her identity had been tied up in this. She says, it was as if my whole soul had been one tooth and now that tooth was drawn. I was a gap. Classic Lewis as a dentist reference. <laughs>
1: <laughs> of course, back to mere Christianity.
0: And she ends by thinking that the worst is now past. She says, and now I thought I had come to the very bottom and that the gods could tell me no worse. But we still have three chapters to go, so I am pretty sure the worst is still yet to come.
1: And I can't wait until then. As we've already read and prepped for next episode, there is some good stuff, guys.
0: So that's that chapter.
1: Uh, we would like to thank our
0: top-tier supporters, Kate and Rowdy on Patreon. Uh, for uh, helping us uh, do, do all of this. And uh, I, at the time that this comes out, we'll be in the middle of Lent. So we hope you're all having a great Lent, very penitential season. You're growing in holiness. And we hope that you'll come back and join us again next week.
1: When we go further up.
0: And further in.
1: Cheers. Cheers.